Hey there, listeners. A quick new update for you that I promise is going to be shorter than the last one. First off, Patreon members at $5 a month or higher will be able to listen to ad-free episodes starting at episode 100 and going forward for basically as long as this podcast keeps going. You can listen either in the Patreon app or through Spotify, where you can get an exclusive RSS feed available only to Patreon members. This is one of the easiest ways to support the podcast for just $5 a month, and I hope you enjoy your ad-free experience. Second, those single barrels are almost here. The Barrel Rye, finished in Armagnac and picked with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, and the two Jack Daniels Barrelproof Ryes are on their way. Patreon members will have exclusive discounts and prime access. Even a dollar a month means you'll have a few hours more to get those bottles before they're released to the public. Last thing, there are now two spots available in the monthly bottle share club available to patrons at the $25 a month tier. If you're interested, I wouldn't hesitate. I expect the spot to go quickly. If it looks like it's all filled up and you're still interested, shoot me an email and we'll see if we can open up just one more spot. With that, thanks everyone and enjoy this episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we are going over to Brooklyn, just about 10, maybe 12 miles south of me, so about an hour and a half away, uh, to visit Alan Katz at New York Distilling Company, who is now... Used to be in Williamsburg, now in Bushwick, even harder to get to, but we're still thrilled to have him on. Alan, welcome. <laughs> welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to start off with the new information for once, which is you just moved. We're in the process. We have moved, uh, which is very exciting. We were in our original home for a dozen years, and the combination of things, but primarily that we outgrew the space and we're excited to be building out a new space uh, in Bushwick, as you said. That's about three times the size of our original home. Not too hard to get to. Uh, it's a couple more stops on the L train if you're in New York City, but not hard at all. And, and most of all, excited that we can accommodate uh, a greater capacity for production, but also a lot more people in the future, too. Nice, nice. I should say, I, I look at it from a driving perspective, so... You know, it's more PQE for me, which is always more difficult. Got it. But but yes, if you're on, if you're taking the train, if you're in Brooklyn, it is plenty easy to get to. Uh, so don't chicken out on my account. I look at it from where I live in Brooklyn, uh, which is not far from Fort Greene, and it's about equidistant from <laughs> old space to new space as well, whether by car gotcha. or subway. Gotcha. Will the new space besides the obvious increases to production and space for barrels uh will it otherwise kind of mimic the old space in terms of having shanty the open space it, it's really in certain ways rather different uh the the underlying reason which frankly is somewhat interesting from a, a business standpoint and a distilling standpoint regards the nature of urban distilling and over the last I think four years, uh, we've been working in earnest, not just us, but a collection of distilleries in New York City, heavily uh, uh, focused on Brooklyn in particular, have been working with the fire department of New York City to evaluate the rules and regulations around production in such a heavily populated area. And like many industries, it's heavily regulated, which makes sense. Uh, you know, we're talking about high pressure distillation, high proof alcohol, 
And all of a sudden, you know, in the last 10 plus years, all these craft distilleries wonderfully, excitingly opened up in Brooklyn. And the fire department said, wow, how are we evaluating uh, the safety concerns? And so not on their own, but really in collaboration with many of us, they've been looking at our production processes and what we have in storage, for example, and have helped to essentially re-regulate the industry. And so the setup of our new space will very strictly adhere to some new regulations, uh, paramountly focused on safety concerns, which I think is fantastic. So how we organize ourselves in the space from a production standpoint will be a little bit different. Uh, it's interesting, you say, we'll have more barrels. We're actually going to have fewer barrels on site. We'll be making whiskey. We'll have some storage on site, but we've really invested in further space in upstate New York, which one allows for more space, but two, quite frankly, is more affordable uh, for uh, en masse barrel storage of our whiskey. And you've uh, been stating for many years now, your goal is to do at least a thousand barrels a year. So yeah, I have said that a lot. <laughs> so has your, we haven't hit that target gonna, yet. It's going to help us do that facilitate? for certain. Good, it it good. will certainly help us get to that goal. And I hope that we surpass it in the not too distant future. I mean, there's so many interesting factors. Uh, it's not just uh, uh, planning for grain, uh, grain planting, harvesting. You never know what you get until the harvest comes in. In fact, our rye harvest for this year just concluded last week, which is exciting in and of itself. Um, but aside from that, we're investing in barrels, storage facility, capacity for production. And uh, some of those things you can plan out years in advance. And some of it's in a more immediate nature. Like certainly twice in our history, we've had uh, business issues simply with the accessibility of purchasing new charred barrels. And fortunately, we're in a, a moment in time where there isn't too much of an issue, but it happens from time to time just with the popularity in our country of making all types of whiskey, uh, not just rye and bourbon. Um, and so you know, all those things from a small business standpoint certainly affect us, not just by planning, but how we try to implement uh, our, our best business plan on a a quarterly and annual basis and ongoing. So I, I've tried my best to visit as many New York City distillers as I can. I'm working on New York State as well, but just looking at New York City and Brooklyn in particular. And I remember when I visited your old space in Williamsburg, I remember thinking, okay, I've been to you know Kings County, Van Brunt, Fort Hamilton. Uh, all these guys are distilling in Brooklyn, but they're also distilling and aging in let's put it industrial zoned areas manufacturing areas that's a big part now, of urban right. distilling <laughs> right and with and that that's even with um you know black button up in rochester others do kind of what i call garage distilling um what i call lovingly actually garage distilling uh you know but you the space in williamsburg was really urban distilling you're surrounded by condos you had a firehouse next door which didn't hurt i would imagine but well they were great uh, neighbors most of all yeah good good so, friends and great neighbors excellent so uh not having been to the new space yet what does that look like in comparison 
Well, I mean, just by feel and by look, we're in a, an, an industrial zone. We have to be because of the high proof nature of what we're producing. Uh, and there's uh, an ongoing limitation in many cities, not just New York City, but you can conjure it whether you live in New York City or not, because it's such a big city geographically and by population, obviously. But we're in in Bushwick, you know, one of the last remaining truly heavy industrial zones left in Brooklyn. There are other pockets, predominantly in Queens and in the Bronx. Our goal is to also be accessible to people. And what's interesting about the neighborhood of Bushwick is that it feels like, in some ways, being on the cusp of a transitional moment the way Williamsburg was 20, 25, 30 years ago. And so while there is a fair amount of industry and spaces that have the capacity for businesses like ours in the neighborhood, a lot of these warehouse spaces are being taken over by breweries and cideries and sake distilleries, uh, let alone cafes, great, great music venues. There's a magnificent contemporary sensibility around art in Bushwick, whether by graffiti art, which is a studied skill and style um, that has an international reputation in Bushwick, but also, as I was referencing, a tremendous number of live music venues, and it caters to an increasing residential audience that's in this neighborhood. And again, if you're taking the subway, whether you're coming from Brooklyn or points in Manhattan, it's pretty accessible. Uh, It's just off the L train. We're four minutes in the new space off of the Jefferson Avenue stop. Um, But by walking, if you were in our space, you would be legitimately a four minute walk from the heart of Bushwick, where the restaurant vibe and the cafe and the music scene vibe are all thriving. And so it is this evolution where you feel the industrial history and nature of the neighborhood, but you can tell more than an undercurrent that the vibe is changing, it's evolving, and it'll be on the backs, I hope, of businesses like ours in part, but also by the people that live there. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to get down there. It's uh, it's not open to the public yet, right? That's correct. We're, we're to be yeah. honest, I hope that we're eight to 10 weeks from full capacity for production. That's our main goal right now. And once we get our production back underway, uh, not just bottling capacity, but distilling capacity uh, uh, and blending capacity, then we'll start integrating what is going to be a very exciting public space that at first we're going to open as an event space. Um, I'd be honest, our our hands are full. We're beyond excited uh, to, to live in and develop this new space, but we'll start with a an event space. And our hope and goal is in time to evolve that again into a, a consumer experience that not only includes a public facing bar, but also tours again and, and other consumer engagement around what we're doing as New York Distilling Company. Yeah, fair enough. And I can't wait to visit once it's open. So with that, I'm going to jump into, I'm going to jump a little back in time uh, for your history for you guys. So to me, 
you started thinking about this like back in 2008, but to me around like 2011, 2012 was one of your first turning points. And you did a great interview, uh, your first of two with the speakeasy back in 2011. And it was very obvious, you know, you were on there uh, with um, uh, Nick Dumas. Nick Dumas? No, I feel like Nate. I had his name wrong. Nate, Nate, thank you. I knew it was an N. Um, Nate Dumas. And you were both talking about this before you had the whiskeys, way before you had the whiskeys, the rice, um, and you had the gins. And you're saying that back then and today, many current former members of the NYDC team have pretty extensive uh, cocktail experience. And that includes everything you want to call mixology, bar service, everything in between. And at the time, you had stated that you wanted NYDC to be a place where beverage directors and bartenders could come and, and really show their skills and have freedom to, to show off in a way. Uh, do you still envision in the future, because you were doing this at the Shanty um, in Williamsburg, do you still see you know, hosting like a rotating guest list of, of bartenders and mixologists? And Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I don't know is the honest answer. What I know it will be, because the passion is absolutely the same in terms of our, our outreach and participation in the New York and, frankly, global cocktail community. This space will certainly allow for that, but our, our first foray will be bringing today's professionals, again, with a primary focus in New York City, because that's where we are geographically, to experience our new space, to learn with us, and to coexist and uh, communally educate our cocktail community and culture. And that's the tentacles that reach out and then you know, touch the consumer base in New York City, whether they live here, whether it's tourism in New York City. Um, that's our first and foremost goal. And it has been, frankly, from from the start, going back to 2011 with Nate, who was you know one of our great, great partners in developing uh, the company concept and not only having a passion for cocktail culture, but imbuing that so it could be shared with others. And we certainly have our own perspective and, and many opinions, but what's great is, and if there's a silver lining to the rather dastardly occasion of the last several years with COVID, is that so much of our cocktail community in New York City has changed. New people have come in. Lots of old people, frankly, have left. Seasoned veterans of our, our cocktail community have gone other places. And so through the jumble of that time, this community has evolved in a certain way. And it's not just rest on your laurels or this is the history of cocktails, quote unquote, or this is the history of drinking in New York City, quote unquote. It's, hey, we're living in the moment. We're beyond glad and grateful to be here. And in many ways, I believe there'll be new trends in drinking, in flavor profiles, in people's attitudes about how they want to hang out at a cocktail bar or a restaurant bar or a hotel bar and what their expectations will be in the future. And that's something that's very new because it's a very unique and specific cultural moment 
that we're in the midst of now. It hasn't been determined yet. Um, and so I think it'll be a great opportunity to bring old friends back, to share some of the tried and true thoughts and experiences that we have. I'll be honest, in my case, for 30 years, living and working in New York City. But the great part about New York is that there are new people all the time. And the city itself is not static. Our industry is not static. And we'll get impressions from them, too, on where they've been, um, what access points they've been embodying and confronted with by their travels and their work experiences. And, and it'll be new all again. You know, I've recently found out I have a little bit more appreciation for cocktails than I thought I did and mixed drinks just because I'm used I'm I almost always drink stuff straight. It's just what I do. And I think I've mentioned this in the last couple of recordings. So listeners, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I find that when I go out, uh, unless it's to a place where like they have something new or they have something I haven't tried yet, whiskey wise or gin wise or rum wise, um, chances are I'm probably going to get a cocktail because it's something that I just don't make at home. Right. If it's at home, I usually drink straight, but I'll drink a cocktail when I go out. Um, and I've been fortunate recently to, uh, you know, become friends with people like Amanda Schuster and uh, other cocktail leaders around, around the city um, as well as David Wondrich met him recently. I know he, he named one of your gins, so couldn't go without, uh, couldn't pass him up. But with that turnover from COVID, and especially what you said, it's not about the history of the cocktail anymore or paying homages. It's really about living in the moment. If you could think of like maybe one or two new trends you're seeing, um, maybe from a more educated cocktail mind like yours, how would you describe those trends? I think the fun things are, you know, there's several. One is in the major cities and maybe other places too, access for ingredients is back in play. So creativity is based on flavor. The same way we distill our whiskey for a flavor. It's not necessarily, yes, it's for commercial proposition, but that's not the first thing on the list. And I mean that earnestly and very honestly. It's about flavor. How do we derive an interesting and fun and exciting flavor from our whiskey. Uh, and so I think that's something that's been borne out over the last generation, and that continues to be in play. One of the great trends, I think, that comes out of COVID is delivery methods. And I don't mean buying bottles on shelves, but when you go to bars and restaurants, because there has been such this jumble from a service perspective, we're all looking at new ways, whether by training, which takes time, takes energy, takes finances, um, but also how to further approach consistency. And so you have new batching methodologies, new service methodologies, whether it's cocktails on draft, that's something that's become very popular. Because if you follow a tried and true formula, you're cutting down on training time. And so I think that's giving new access points to bar teams and restaurant teams so that they can focus on flavor 
and say, how do we achieve consistency? And then give the appropriate amount of time for guest interaction, guest explanation of ingredients. Uh, and then I think the other trend that's really great for companies like ours is there's this a deeper exploration of whiskey in and of itself. Now, I don't want to take for granted, you know, our focus on whiskey is singularly about rye and even beyond American rye around a focus on giving uh, a specific attitude, even rebirth to rye whiskey from New York, rye grain grown in New York, rye grain with a heritage geographically from New York. That's our perspective. But there are whiskeys from all over the country that fall sometimes neatly, sometimes not so, into different categories, whether it's single malts or other styles of whiskey, uh, aging capacity, aging in different climates. And, and that's really exciting to me because it continues the effort of really getting under the hood and into the nitty gritty of this paramount word, simple as it is, of flavor. You can get off the rails in a good way about provenance, about agronomy. I think all these things are vital. Who grew the grains? That enthuses me on a daily basis. What are the seasonal issues or influences year to year in growing corn or growing rye or growing barley? Those are fascinating details. But at the end of the day, we back that out, or at least I do, from what's the flavor in the bottle. And then with explanation, with sharing, sometimes deductive reasoning, and perhaps, and I mean this seriously, sometimes spiritual reasoning, we back out to what are the influences that helped us achieve what's in the bottle today. I think it's a great transition point to look back to the origin of, of where you started. So from those early interviews and also from more recent ones, you've been very clear that from the beginning, New York Distilling Company was going to produce rise and gins. So, you know, and I think you had perfect reasoning and I'll list them out and correct me if any are wrong, but you know, number one, couldn't compete in the vodka market. There's just too many of them. And y'all, I mean, y'all, the stills that you had weren't really meant for vodka production anyway, but you know, the vodka market was saturated. Number two, as you just said, you wanted to highlight rye and their place in New York and New York's history. So you can make a bourbon and many other New York distillers do, but you wanted to focus on rye. And with that, it would make you the only New York whiskey distillery to only make rye. And so over the last you know decade plus, that strategy is borne out. You still have some fantastic gins, some uh, rise. We'll get into both of those. Overall, looking from the 30,000 foot view, though, has your original reasoning held true over this past decade? And have you had any doubts about the strategy over the course of that yeah. time? <clears throat> well, look, it's it's very personal. And I'll just clarify a couple of things. One on vodka, I have nothing against vodka. It's when you when I use that word intentionally, that our focus on everything we do is about flavor. <clears throat> In many ways, it's the antithesis of the prescription for vodka. And it's not to say that vodka doesn't have flavor. Of course it does, whether it's made from corn or rye or potatoes. It has flavor. 
But innately, there's not a lot to manipulate for me personally by the creative nature of distilling vodka. Two, you're absolutely right. The equipment we have does not really uh, suit the needs, uh, not just logistically, but legally to make vodka. But the other is, it's not just that the market's saturated. They're new vodkas all the time, and, and many of them succeed. But it takes such a monumental bank account of cash mm. to market with the big players that we virtually uh, found that beyond challenging. And I'd only relate that to bourbon in a sort of subtle way. I adore bourbon. I drink a ton of bourbon. I'm at home now. Uh, there's bourbons that I love. It's great for me to unwind at the end of the day. Our choice, I hope with humility, was to try our best to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And I thought, again, on a personal level, that if we were to make bourbon, it might take more than my lifetime to achieve a bourbon of the level of nuance and sophistication of flavor that we're striving for based on all the extraordinary bourbons that are already on the market. What excited me and our team about rye whiskey is one, the New York context. That New York, which is obviously a large geographic state, has such a profoundly beneficial climate, particularly in upstate New York, for growing rye. It's not just about distilling rye and aging and blending rye, but it's about growing the grain itself and that New York's uh, topography, its soil composition, its climate are all extraordinarily well-suited for growing this grain. The next is there's a great American story. There's a New York story, but there's also this great American story about the heritage of rye its origins going back easily to uh, at least 18th century. And we felt there's a great story really to be told here that could be part of our marketing, our branding, and frankly, the fun of not only creating products, but sharing the story around them. All fair. And before I forget, I have I had this question later on in the interview, but I think You've hit on it enough that I want to ask it now. So uh, we'll get into more about working with Peterson Farms a little bit later. But recently, just the last couple of episodes, as this one comes out, uh, we were talking with Jason at Black Button and Aaron at Coppersea, uh, Black Button up in Rochester, and then Coppersea is up in the Hudson Valley uh, for listeners not in New York, and both noted that their corn crops and their crops in general have just been hammered this year because of all of this extra rain that we've been getting and torrential rains yeah. at that. It's been like Florida here. It's, it's been yeah. crazy. Um, and right now it, it feels like Florida. It's a hundred plus and, and no, no. <laughs> um, it's terrible, but uh, you mentioned that your rye harvest had just finished. Uh, have you, seen any ill effects from that or do you expect any not this year no we, we've been lucky <clears throat> excuse me we've been very fortunate you know rye knock on whatever you might believe in mm -hmm. rye is a hardy grain and you know some of the points of discovery for us that are great in elements and opportunities of storytelling 
is obviously we're growing rye to distill it and age it and blend it and create these exciting whiskeys. What you don't see as sort of the tip of the iceberg is what's happening underground. And rye is so sturdy because its root structure, which has been known for generations, is so hardy and strong that historically rye has been used not just in New York, but but all over the world as a cover crop. And by that, I mean, the farmers more typically will grow rye and come harvest, they'll simply plow it under. But the rootstock of the grain itself is so substantial that the benefit is that it holds soil together. It retains the composition, the nutrients, uh, it prevents to a certain and significant degree erosion. And so it's it's been known for a long time of those benefits of growing the grain itself. But above ground, when you see rye, and you're absolutely right, it's been a hardy a rain season for us in New York, throughout the state. But we were fortunate that, you know, we, we have not seen a harvest where the crop has been destroyed in really any regard. I'd say over the course of our, you know, dozen plus years uh, growing rye, and as you mentioned, specifically with Peterson Family Farms, uh, which is up in the Finger Lake regions of New York, about six hours north of New York City, is I think we had one year. We didn't lose a crop, but it was just was a, a shorter harvest than we had originally anticipated. But but uh, it's been a great educational process for us to to learn about not only the the crop itself, but the specific grain and the inherent benefits of not just growing it, but relying on it as a harvestable commodity and that just reminded me of one other factor that i forgot uh to to throw in there plus the rains we've also had those tremendous canadian wildfires and all the yeah. smoke coming through so this will be a question that for now is just kind of to put a pin in it but i am curious to see if you know a couple of years down the road we start seeing products from really the northeast let's be frank that um, people find a little bit of smoke in them? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I would say we haven't found anything significant in that regard. Our barrel warehouses, our rick houses, are indoors. They're not temperature controlled. I would say often, particularly in the hotter summer months, we leave windows open because you do want airflow, typically. This year, the windows are not open. When... We've had, and, and let's be honest, you know, over the course of several years, the issue of the Canadian wildfires has maybe contributed to five or six smoky days for, for us. And so through the course of several years of aging, my anticipation is that it won't be that significant of an influence, but it's a great question. And my easy answer and honest answer is, Time will tell. Well, I have to say, I'm I'm curious. I'm who knows? It might not be a bad thing. Could be an interesting to your points. It could be an interesting yeah. flavor compound. So we will see. But with that, I'm gonna put a pause on the rye for the moment because I have to deal with the gins. And for me, the story of your gins starts with uh, when I went down to the Williamsburg location to pick up some bottles to try. And I 
I went in, I got the box, and then uh, the staff was saying, you know, we have trivia tonight. Do you want to stick around? <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, I don't have anything to do tonight, and I love trivia. I'm one of those people who just has random facts constantly rattling in their head. Um, and long story short, I, I guess I was a ringer that night, and uh, I won the bottle of Perry's Todd. Um, so ended up being the first place among all the teams, uh, one person, but the point was that I got to try the gins while I was playing and I had gone there again to, to try the rise. It hadn't occurred to me at that point to try the gins. And I, so I got to try, uh, Dorothy Parker, Perry's tot and the, was the pink gin? Is that what it's called? Sure. Well, Dorothy Parker Rose Petal Gin. Rose Petal. Right. Right. Yep. Um, so I got to try all three of them, and and they were excellent. So as it happens, more to you know today and recent history, I've been talking to a few gin producers from around the world, and gin kind of has a special place in my heart because I think it's one of those things that is really can be so local and it can really show off the local flora and everything about it. And it was probably kicked off by our April trip to London because so much <laughs> in London. Sure. Um, after that, I also recently spoke with Bertha's revenge gin out of Ireland. And it was a good reminder of what gin can be. And with that, I wanted to start off by saying that you and you being a New York distilling company and Bertha's both do something that I greatly appreciate when you have different gins. So you have the Dorothy Parker at 88 proof, 44% ABV and the Perry's Tot Navy Strength at uh, 114. And it's not just, the Dorothy Parker is not just a proofed down version of the Perry's Tot. Correct. You you add, you know, the for Perry's Tide, you had two more botanicals in there. I know the process is largely the same, and we'll, we'll get into that. But when you know, but it's, but I appreciate that it's a different thing. You took the time to look at what would be different at different proofs. So going with that, first question after that very long intro is, how long did it come? How long did it take to come up with those profiles and? recipes that you wanted in the gins if i recollect to, you know perry's tot was the first gin that we developed they both came out perry's tot and dorothy parker at the same time in december of 2011 but as we were building the distillery and working on recipes the first concept i have and i have to give all credit uh with love affection respect and homage to plymouth gin and I've been really very fortunate in so many professional aspects of my life. But years ago, I had been invited on the first of several trips to Plymouth Gin in Southern England. And it was the moment for me of being stunned into submission. And I mean that quite literally of, oh, my goodness, I think I want to open an urban distillery. Plymouth Gin is made in the city of Plymouth. 
and you walk around the lane and there it is right there in the middle of a street is this 200 plus year old distillery beautifully fascinatingly and the first trip i took there i also had the opportunity for the first time in my life to taste and learn about their navy strength gin i'd never heard about uh, the concept of this overproof gin and at the time there had been no navy strength gin distributed in the united states probably for 75 maybe more uh, years than that and i was very excited about it because we were really just starting to feel the cusp of what the cocktail culture in new york city was about to become now i often reference and one of my favorite points in time is new year's eve 1999. And I get it. It feels like a long time ago. But for me, while it wasn't yesterday, it's not so distant in the past. And for my for my being, for my perspective, on New Year's Eve 1999, there were the sum total of four cocktail bars in New York City. There was Angel Share in the East Village, which fortunately it closed Recently, after 30 years of business, it's recently reopened in a new location. There was a great bar called Passerby in the West Village, Chelsea area, a bar owned by Toby Cicchini, famed of inventing the Cosmopolitan, a long time ago worked at the Odeon in Tribeca, now owns a magnificent stalwart neighborhood cocktail bar called Long Island Bar at Atlantic and Hicks in Brooklyn. That's two. There was the Rainbow Room up in Rockefeller Center, famed, of course, because the original cocktail concept, while helmed by the famed restaurateur of the last half of the 20th century, Joe Baum, was really curated by none other than Dale DeGroff, his protege. That was a little too rich for my blood. I went to the Rainbow Room once, but I had a great cocktail there spectacular views of around the city from up in Rockefeller Center. And then the fourth cocktail bar, which opened New Year's Eve 1999 on the Lower East Side, was a bar on Eldridge Street called Milk and Honey. And that was really the cocktail bar that started not only this tremendous cocktail trend, but also the speakeasy trend, which isn't as prevalent today, but it was a through line from the late 90s and early aughts to where we are today, 20 plus years later, in this marvelously inventive place, again, focused on flavor and service too, of course. But for me, expanding from that nature of the end of 1999 to today where you can't walk in a neighborhood in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in many, many neighborhoods in Queens and others all over the metropolitan area, without either walking into a cocktail bar or a bar or restaurant that has a concerted cocktail program. And so that was really what was informing me about one, trying my best to be creative, to be original, but also to look at gin as not a blank canvas, but a canvas for cocktails. And so it came time to develop Perry's Tot, and then subsequently, and not long thereafter, Dorothy Parker Gin. It was really a focus on cocktails. And with every batch, we tested each gin in five cocktails, in martinis, gin and tonics, Negronis, Gimlets, 
and a sort of fancy sour called a white lady with egg whites. And it was beyond informative. It was mandated because it taught us so much about what we were doing and how we were on the fly learning to be distillers of this particular category. And even gins that might have interesting notes and appealing flavors on their own didn't always measure up in the mixed drinks. And so it was really fascinating for us to test patiently and purposefully each sample set against these cocktails. And so for Perry's Todd, it took us almost a year to really finalize and fine tune the recipe. And then shortly thereafter, let's say it was in the bag as a finished recipe, we decided that we wanted a different style of gin, something that was contemporary, but also had a structure of juniper berries as the backbone. And that's really the hallmark of of all the gins that we make is that the backbone really is juniper berries. So no matter where you are in the world, you know, if you want to say this is gin and has a characteristic and personality surrounding juniper berries, it doesn't mean it has one note to it. It really is, you know, certainly with Dorothy Parker, uh, an unusual, even surprising note around around juniper berries, but that it has that backbone and structure to build the rest of the flavor profile from. And as you mentioned, I, when I post about the gins, I'll uh, post the botanicals that are in there. Some gins there are with like 25, 40 botanicals in them. You've got eight for the Dorothy Parker and 10 for Perry's. Yeah, I mean, getting too complicated is not my thing. It's important for us as cocktail people that, that we're making spirits for cocktail professionals. But if you don't make something that's within arm's reach of a consumer enthusiast, uh, it can get a little esoteric. And that's just our perspective. No, I, I totally agree. There are some, there are some gins. I do love monkey 47. I do but too, but that's definitely a sipping gin. That's something that, yeah, which is a great perspective. Yeah. yeah it's something that I don't, I don't even know how you would, you probably know better than I do, how you would start to make a cocktail with something with 47 botanicals in it. But uh, I think things like Roku gin from Japan with six botanicals, a lot easier, as you said, to make yeah. it a canvas yeah. for a cocktail. So a canvas starts blank. Take it from there. So with the, once you had those profiles, and I think you, you pretty much answered this question, but when you were talking to Drew Hanish at uh, Whiskey Lore about the rise, you said that you were leaning more into the, could we find the best profile rather than trying to find a gap and fill it. Did you feel the same way when you were creating the gins? Well, you know, the gins are a different story for me. Again, you know, the the direction was let's be purposefully different. I use those words specifically to be purposefully different, but accessible for these cocktails. You know, the worst thing, in my humble opinion, that you can ask a distiller, and in this case, a gin distiller, is, well, what does your product taste like? As if to infer, how do you compare to some other, let's say, stalwart brand that someone might be familiar with? And the truth is, is, you know, I, I'm not going to be a great painter uh, as much as I'd like to be. I'm not going to be a great musician. This is our platform for creativity. We absolutely want to reach a specific audience, those who are enthusiastic 
about spirits and those who are enthusiastic about cocktails. But within that range, there's great room for originality. And so that was the perspective we took. How can we do something that maybe hasn't been done before? On Perry's Todd, it was, can we, in a simplistic way, but a good challenge, create an overproof gin? And Perry's Todd is bottled at 114 proof that has a luscious mouthfeel that even at such extreme proof that you may find pleasure in simply holding it in your mouth in letting the flavor wash over not just your tongue, but your upper palate and your gums and the sides of your cheeks and enjoy some luscious viscosity as well as the flavor without being all-consuming or overpowering based on the percentage of alcohol. For Dorothy Parker, a totally different concept. As I said, we wanted to have gins that anyone that tasted them could say, that's a juniper berry focused gin. Now, most people think of juniper berries. And if I say, well, what does juniper berry taste like to you, David? You might say one. Mm -hmm. What are the characteristics of juniper berries in gin? I mean, number one note's probably going to be piney. Okay, great. Many, mm -hmm. many people say that. It has a pine quality, a Christmas tree quality. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when you're sitting around trying to be creative at our small scale. We're popping dried botanicals in our mouths just to say, boy, this is fun. Let's taste where the botanicals coming from. How are we evaluating things with our own sensory experience? And it occurred to us that juniper berries have an innate flavor beyond the piney quality. That piney essence comes from the essential oils in the skin of the botanical. But if you just press gently with your teeth into juniper berries and get through that layer of skin, juniper berries are amazingly sweet. I'd go so far as to say that they're candy-like. And for me, tasting them again and again and again, I was confronted by a flavor profile that drew me back to my childhood in a regressive nature to a specific candy I would have at the movies called jujubes. And for me, a consistency and flavor of the fruit quality of juniper berries is a blend of the purple grape-flavored jujube and the red catch-all berry jujube. And it was another one of those thunderstruck moments of, wait a minute, I don't know any gins, and we've been privileged enough to taste hundreds of gins from around the world. I don't know of any that take the tact of focusing on the fruit quality of juniper berries. And so that became the offshoot and the direction of creating the other gin in the portfolio. And frankly, our, our dominantly selling gin, Dorothy Parker gin, after the, the famed New York writer, Dorothy Parker. And it was fun. I mean, what a great exploration to say, wow, how can we create something of that nature that still has a paramount focus for usage in cocktails? And this this goes to the process of it. And this is another thing that you and Bertha's Revenge have in common is that other than, I'll rephrase that. 
what you and they have in common is instead of using a gin basket, as far as I know, you're putting the botanicals in the spirit and slow cooking them to extract the flavor without burning the oils. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but oh. if I'm right, um, I'm just curious why you decided to do it that way instead of using a gin basket. For a couple of reasons. One, our original home, our distillery in Williamsburg, uh, was notorious to our team for not being temperature controlled. And so while there are several methodologies for making gin, whether macerating or infusing botanicals in neutral grain spirit, or using, as you say, a gin basket uh, for a, a Carter head methodology, where rather than introducing the botanicals to direct contact with neutral grain spirit, as you distill the gin and it evaporates in the still itself, the vapors are then infused with the botanicals that are suspended in the equipment. We basically chose a direct shot methodology. <clears throat> Excuse me. In other words, without temperature control, you know, in winter, it's pretty cold. In summer, it's a little hot and humid. That's an understatement. We wanted to get the gin distilling, if you will, as relatively quickly as possible so that we could afford consistency. And when you're making gin, and yes, there are people who drink gin on its own. We love those people, even with to their faces. We call those wonderful people gin freaks. But most people will enjoy gin in a cocktail. And it better damn well be as consistent as anything else they would get, whether an historic brand or contemporary brand. Because if you order a martini with Dorothy Parker today and order another one next weekend, it better taste the same. And so for the gin in particular, we're striving for consistency. And that was the methodology we felt and still do feel afforded us the best opportunity for consistency batch to batch. The truth is the subtlety of hanging specific botanicals in a basket is just that. It's when you're using rather delicate botanicals, in our opinion, <clears throat> that otherwise might be eviscerated at high temperature and high pressure if introduced in the kettle of the still itself. And so while we're moving into a new space, and gloriously to me, to our distilling team, it will be fully temperature controlled. Um, we may experiment with a few things, but but we'll primarily still use a direct shot methodology because it's worked well for us. At the end of the day, you can't argue with what's worked best. And as I can attest, these are really good gins. These are things that don't feel really. Yeah, they 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 definitely have characters all their own. They have different purposes, and can't say enough. I think the last question I have for you is. If you had to put each of those gins, the, the Perry's Tot and the Dorothy Parker, into gin categories, what style would you say that each of them are? This month's Impact Spotlight is on White Heather and McNair's blended whiskeys, and the tales of the two men who made these venerable brands what they are. The first is Billy Walker, a 2021 Icons of Whiskey Hall of Fame inductee and owner of the Glenallachy another Impex brand and a recent podcast guest, Billy has over five decades of experience in the Scotch world. With White Heather unshow-filtered blended whiskey, Billy returns to his roots. 
White Heather was relaunched in 2021 with a 21-year-old blended scotch, and is now joined by a 15-year-old edition. Both feature 47% single malt in their blend and draw from top stocks in Isla, Speyside, and the Highlands. The 15-year-old is matured in American and Spanish oak casks for a beautiful blend of honey, malt, wispy smoke, and candied citrus. The 21-year-old is matured in American oak and sherry butts for 18 years before a final three years in PX and Oloroso punchins. This is plus time in medium toast and medium char Appalachian oak for a final burst of sweetness and complexity. The second story is of Harvey McNair. McNair was the essence of a Victorian Scotsman. He accomplished many trades and travels in his lifetime, and more than anything, he loved and championed the natural, unadulterated color of whiskey. Pure gold, as he called it. Pure gold was the foundation of the whiskey blends he created. Today's McNair Uncho Filtered Blended Whiskey, thanks to Billy Walker, honors Harvey's legacy, marrying peated malt, Highland, Isla, and Speyside with Glenallachie spirit. This is a blend for the peat lovers. To find all of these whiskeys and any Impex product, visit a premium spirits retailer near you. You can also visit Impex at www.impexbev.com or email office at impexbev.com for those harder-to-find releases. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Well, for Perry's Tot, because of the botanical build, I would call it an English gin. It's an homage to classic English gins. It's heavy juniper berry-based. The second most abundant botanical we use for both gins is coriander seed, which I like to describe as a bridge botanical. Uh, They're super tasters who who will say they can taste coriander seed in gin. I don't believe that I can, but to me, because of the qualities of coriander seed, to me, it bridges simultaneously uh, to... Uh, uh, herbal flavors, spice flavors like cinnamon bark or star anise or cardamom, uh, but also simultaneously to fruit flavors like lemon peel, orange peel, grapefruit peel. We use all of these as combinations in our recipes. But by and large, the structure of Perry's Tot is based on my affinity for a range of classic English gins for Plymouth, for a beef eater. Uh, those two in particular um, that are the gins that I grew up uh, in my 20s, to be specific, of not only learning about gin and appreciating it, but learning to make gin cocktails with as well. Um, I would include Gordon's gin in, in that too. Um, you know, those are three very influential brands to my palate. Dorothy Parker is in a very different regard. I wouldn't give it a specific nationality like this is an American style of gin. More broadly, for me, it's a contemporary gin that has, as I said, a specific point of view because the backbone, the most abundant botanical uh, at over 60% is still juniper berry. But because of the nature and variety of botanicals we're using, namely a tiny bit of elderberry and trace amounts of dried hibiscus petals that we're trying to specifically effort a mimicking of just those fruit qualities that I was mentioning prior. So that when you nose or taste Dorothy Parker gin on its own, it's evocative of 
the inherent fruit quality of the botanical juniper berries. When you mix with it, to me, the fun of this gin is those elements, they don't disappear, but they just gently recess to the background. You know it's Dorothy Parker gin, but it really, and fortunately for us, to be honest, plays well with other modifiers, with vermouth, with liqueurs, with fresh citrus, and a range of things that makes it a very mixable spirit. Can I, again, uh, the, I think the English style kind of London dry with the heavy juniper. I mean, personally, I like it. I also like IPAs. I like things that are piney and to, to paint a very broad canvas over it before you get into the specifics, but there's still quite a bit of flavor to explore in both of them. So I definitely encourage people, even those whiskey drinkers who up until now may have been kind of tuning in and out because they're like, Oh, you're talking about gin again, but you know, Hey, I would encourage you to try these on their own, but also try it in, in a cocktail that's going to appeal to you because as we've been saying, they're meant to be appreciated on their own and in cocktails. So with that, we're going to flip over to the rise. So as I said, those whiskey drinkers out there, you can fully tune in now. Um, hope you've been listening the whole time and you can fully tune in now. So the uh, first question I wanted to ask was, I wanted to make sure I didn't get a discontinuity here. So when you when you were first speaking back in, in 2011, back in that speakeasy episode, uh, you know, you were just getting started with distilling the rise as well, not only the gins, but the rise. And at that point, you had said the rye was at 72% in the mash bill. Uh, now, today, it's 75%. Um, I wanted to just confirm that, number one, and then to ask when the changeover happened. You are correct. The mash bill that we use and have for several years is 75% rye, 13% corn, 12% malted barley. <clears throat> what year did we make that change? Wow. I would have to guess. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I would hazard to guess that if our first authentic rye whiskey runs were in 2012, that it was probably around 2015 that we slightly shifted the mash bill to bump the rye a little bit. So with that, I, the next question was, if if you weren't able to pick out a year, and I'm impressed that you did because not everyone can do that, uh, I was going to ask if it happened before or after the Empire Rye Standard. Well, it was out. in concert with that. And so as you referenced, we were one of the the participants and, and founding contributors to the concept of creating a what we hope will be a signature style or signature spirit inherent to New York State. And that is Empire Rye. And the truth is, as we've discussed, the only whiskey we make <clears throat> is rye whiskey. We don't make any other kind of whiskey. Uh, and that's to our purpose and pleasure. And so we were and still are very enthusiastic about the concept of promoting rye whiskey from New York. Uh, and the fun is that others, while they may make other styles of whiskey as well, are certainly making rye too. And the fun was collaborating as a group of people with different opinions 
uh, different parts of the state, not just downstate, but upstate, midstate, different access points for grains, uh, barrel sizes, length of aging, different opinions on flavor profiles that we could come together and say, how could we create a burgeoning category? And one of the things we settled on as a nice round number for, for promotional purposes, one, but also in support of New York State agriculture, was that 75% would be the minimum percentage of rye in what would otherwise be classified as empire rye, New York being the empire state, as most know. Uh, and so that's when we transitioned. And for us, it's not a far stretch. It's not like there's an outrageous difference in the barrels that we taste now that are 72% rye compared to 75% rye. The more important thing for us is, again, just personal opinion, was the importance of including corn. And while 13% may not seem like a lot, but just that little bit we think has a, an influential uh, context in the finished result of our aged whiskey. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a big fan of Empire Rye. I you know, most distillery, well, most, most whiskey distillers in New York, I think have kind of come around to the standard. Um, I know there are a couple who have decided not to take on the standard because that's just their style of, of rye or their other considerations to make. But, you know, from the perspective of a New Yorker wanting to promote New York whiskeys, New York rye, I'm all behind it in the, in that respect. And the fact that the, you know, the, the rye has to come from New York even more so. It's just, it adds to it. And to and you're right to your point that it's not like you were going from, a, you know, a Maryland style or a barely legal rye to 75%. You're going to 72 to 75. So some difference, I'm sure, but not, as you said, it's not something where it's unrecognizable. Well, the idea and the whole concept of our collaboration with other whiskey distillers in New York is we want to create a standard, but within that, you know, as much flexibility as possible because we all have our own points of view and passions and we want to support each other's work and celebrate it at the same. You know, for us, as an example, the minimum aging requirement for Empire Rye is two years. For us, we don't touch barrels until they're at least four years old and then we start evaluating them for individual purposes. Right. And if you get, so actually, let, let's jump right in. That's, uh, we'll start with the flagship ragtime rye. So I know you have music <clears throat> backgrounds as well. I'm a piano player. Gotta love the ragtime, all the Scott Joplin uh, rags that I got to learn when I was younger. Uh, these ryes, you started, so you started dumping rye barrels around 2016, 2017 at that, on that timeline. Sounds about right. Well, I mean, the, the earnest truth, if you want the, the full story, is by concept, before we started distilling rye at all, was that we were going to excitedly have a two-year-old straight rye whiskey. And going back in time, you know, to concepting uh, the principles that would guide our business, you know, in those days, there were not many brands of rye whiskey. There were a few national brands. And these are stalwarts, and, and I, I'll name them because they're great whiskeys. There was Rittenhouse, and any serious cocktail bar had Rittenhouse, Bottle and Bond in the well. But it became so popular in New York and so quickly 
that the the marketplace would run out of Rittenhouse two, three times a year. And then there was old Overholt, which at the time didn't have the, the bonded version that they have now. It was just the, the 80 proof version from Jim Beam. Uh, Jim Beam also had a yellow label rye that was available in New York. Uh, there was Sazerac rye, 90 proof. And there was wild turkey rye. And what you'll notice is that all of these are bourbon companies. And so from a marketing standpoint, what was happening, and they were aware of it, but more or less under their noses to a certain degree in a, in a profoundly influential marketplace like New York is, we were all starting to drink rye in cocktails. And there just wasn't enough aged rye to support the growing interest. And the number of cocktail bars that were opening and restaurants and hotels that all of a sudden implemented cocktail programs. Those rise were predominantly uh, mash bills at the 51, 52% rye level. And so while we weren't looking to go over the top, we were looking to have a substantial rye percentage in the mash bill, hence originally 72, now 75 but again, the goal was a two-year straight rye whiskey. How exciting that will be. And we tasted it at two years old. And not with you know, any crestfallen nature, but to be very honest, while it wasn't bad, it wasn't whereas, anywhere as good as I hoped it would be. And we said to ourselves, look, we're going to defer this for a year. This has to age more. Uh, let's come back and taste it in a year. And we said, nope, we're not going to release any yet. We'll let you know when. At three years old, it was substantially more interesting. And to be very honest, you know, we have a, a business to run. We have bills to pay. We had to start releasing some rye. So if our first ryes were distilled in 2012, the first release of Ragtime was a straight-on three-year-old rye whiskey in 2015, end of 2015. The benefit of making rye consistently over these many years, a decade plus, is that the blend for ragtime rye has now evolved to a minimum age of four years and a concerted blend of four, five, and six-year-old ryes that's got a lot more nuance to it, a lot more character of flavor, and I would say, from my taste standpoint, a lot more versatility in cocktails. And from the beginning, this was at the right. The, we're talking about the flagship still uh, was at 90.4 proof. Correct. So I have to ask. So I've heard it said that you, you know, you like the 90 proof four is your lucky number. So it was 90.4. <laughs> yeah. But, but I have to ask because the, it, it's just out there for me. Was it influenced at all by uh, Chris Morris? Uh, saying that 90.4 is the perfect proof for whiskeys. Well, I'll be very honest with you. And I know Chris. Uh, I'm a fan of Chris's. I haven't seen Chris in person in years. I never heard that story before. The truth is, when we started blending, and it wasn't something I paid attention to in the outset of the business, but it became a concerted part of what we do. We're blenders of whiskey as well. And again, it goes back to an adherence to striving for flavor. And we would work with blends and then really from 85 to 95 proof over months, we tasted at every conceivable range. 
85, 85.1, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, and through that range to 95 proof. And we kept coming back to 90 because it worked well. In this case, while we did try it in many cocktails, what we stuck to is it had to be, by our taste, and I'll be boastful, it had to be perfect in a classic Manhattan. And then in the range of 90, we did settle on 90.4. Yes, you get a little loopy when you're tasting over and over and over again. And we we agreed 90.4 would be a fun proof and a distinctive point of view. But I, I never heard that story from Chris. I'm going to have to look that up too. Yep. That's it's, I think, it, I think it's recorded. It's not apocryphal. He, he's definitely said that <laughs> at some point. I'm going to look um, into that. But, but that's why uh, Woodford products and a lot of other Brown Foreman, it's at 90.4 proof for that reason, because that's just the, the, for him, that's where bourbon has the most character, the most flavor. So um, if you do get to ask him about it, I'm very curious to hear what his thoughts are and to see if he thinks uh, it I'm, carries I'm over to, to rye as well. <clears throat> yeah. So past, past that point, uh, another thing, there were so many things from the speakeasy interview, by the way, that between that one and the one he did in 2017, that I urge people to listen to those two as well, because I'm definitely skipping over some stuff, but you made another comment that uh, this would be from 2017, that when you were first bringing the ragtime rye around the country and starting around the Northeast and then going from there, uh, you would give blind tastings and you noticed that people in different parts of the country had different profiles that they lent to. And the two that I'm going to pull out here were that uh, Boston people tended towards kind of a sweeter rye. And in New York, it was more of a punchier, spicier rye. Uh, and I guess the question there for me is as a smaller distillery, even as you're growing now, but still as a smaller distillery, how do you use that info? For me, and, and just to give context, I remember that almost like it was yesterday, it was a focus group, a trade focus group that I was doing on behalf of Jim Beam. And they were really, at the time, instrumental in a creative manner of developing some new rye whiskeys. And they were curious and I can only surmise this, that from a marketing standpoint, based on these surveys of professional bartenders in different markets, of what styles of cocktails they might prefer and what they were selling to their customers. It didn't necessarily or specifically have an influence of what we were making and what became Ragtime Rye. It has to be a profile that you love. And we love the profile of Ragtime Rye. The influence I could see it having is, is how you present creative cocktails in different markets. Because the wonderful thing about these drinks is you can manipulate them by their modifiers. How much whiskey you use in a drink, how much sweetener you use, how much citrus do you use? I know that my personal palate trends toward a far more acidic tart drink than most people enjoy. And when I'm presenting drinks, I might modify that a little bit, or I might reference. I love refreshingly bracing cocktails. We can change that. 
We can dial back the citrus. We can dial up the sweetener, add a fruit liqueur, whatever the case may be. So that's where that information influenced me. It was really more so in presenting finished cocktails in different parts of the country, more so than how we wanted to evolve our our whiskey. And that being said, our home market is New York. It's our biggest market. It always will be our biggest market. And and there are a lot of very structured characteristics about New York City. We don't drive. So what does that mean? We drink drinks that might be stronger than other parts of the country are used to. Doesn't mean we're drinking to tremendous success, but at the end of the night, we're getting on a bus, we're getting on a subway, we're walking home. Um, Yes, I think because of the food that's served in New York and other places too, has become increasingly less sweet, more herbal, more succulent, that that also influences the style and flavor profiles of the cocktails we drink as well. That's that's fascinating. I I must have listened to it a little too quickly because I uh, thought it was specifically on, on the rise themselves, as opposed to kind of in the cocktail sense and, and through this, the, well, it definitely was a range group. of rise, but, but I think that's what I gleaned from it gotcha. because it, it was a, it was a focus group entertaining bartenders. It It's still, I'm still glad I asked the question because it, it even if it didn't necessarily directly impact how ragtime ride developed because you already had a profile that you were aiming for at that time. And said, we like our drinks a little stronger here in New York. Um, cab is never a problem. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll give you the other perspective and this is unique as a small distillery and a distillery when you're making your own product is you've got to be attuned to listen to what's coming out of the barrels. We can make the whiskey but it's not until years later that you say, ah, these are the notes of our whiskey. Or there's a range of notes. These are the ones we'd like to highlight. And so that's all part of the, the learning process, but also the evolution of bringing a finished product to market. This question just came to me as a thought, but if you if you were to take that those findings to an extreme let's say when you're doing a single barrel program would you target the single barrels you pick for the regionality we could i would say for us as a starting point we're looking for interesting flavors people and by people i mean accounts that are interested in single barrels are typically looking for something that is distinctively unique and while that focus group that you're referencing that focus group is at least 15 years in the history that the nature of the evolution of what we've as professionals have been made available to taste the nature of social media and the instancy of say sharing cocktail recipes or tasting notes from a broader professional community that might not be regional, that might be international, uh, has certainly given a greater service to the professionality of cocktail bartending. And that applies to us as well. We share notes 
uh, all the time on a range of spirits, on cocktails and profiles. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this evolution over 10, 15 years has also borne not only new results, but new implications for how we go about our work and how we use our opinions and instruction or learning from other people to influence what we're doing and how we approach not just tasting, but also blending, in this case, our whiskey. And with that, I do want to mention, so there are always questions we don't get to, but and we <laughs> won't get to talk about each of the uh, products tonight, but I do want to highlight you've got the original Ragtime Rye, you've got a Bottled and Bond version now, uh, you've got the Applejack finish, which is one of my favorites, and of course, the single barrels and the cast strength. So you've got five variations on this rye. Well, the single barrels are, are a cast strength expression. Right. So, uh, so four then, really. Yes. Kind of three, three core ones and then one that is barrel by barrel. You may or may not get the same flavors, but it's going to be something. <laughs> yeah. As you said, it's going to yeah. be something interesting for sure. That's true. So, uh, you know, if we don't hit on those products, uh, definitely. And the thing is, too, and I have to shout this out. Pricing doesn't take a factor into my ratings scale, but it does play a factor for everybody. And I do have to say that I find your rise to be, they're, they're just plain affordable for what you're looking at. For the ragtime, it's definitely affordable as a sipper or as a cocktail, for, same for bottle and bond. Once you get to the single barrels, they're of course a little bit more expensive because they're single barrels, they're a higher proof and all of that, but they're not, you know, you're not emptying your wallet for it. So it's in that range where you can take a chance on a single barrel. And even if you aren't thrilled with that particular barrel, it's not going to turn you off from buying another one or sharing that first one with more people. So yeah, look, I'll be honest, yeah. you know, making, making whiskey as a small distiller, making whiskey as an urban distiller is magnificently inefficient, but you know, if you're passionate about something and you're able to do it, you know, hell, throw efficiency out the window. You do it because you love it, because the exploration and the process, in our case, bring us tremendous joy and satisfaction. It's not painstaking. It's joy staking. I mean that honestly. Um, but that being said, again, it, it's expensive to do. And we want to do everything we can to make the, the price points as accessible as possible. Because if people can't experience your whiskey, one, it's not that no one's going to buy it. It's just what we're trying to do, like many other craft distilleries around the country and in other parts of the world now, is expand the knowledge base and expand the range of profiles, in our case, in the category of rye whiskey. I'm a big proponent of try it. If you haven't tried it before, try it. Exactly. You like it, you don't like it, but you got to try it to know. So in our last 15 minutes or so, there are two big topics I want to cover. Originally three, but I'm going to, yeah, we'll see about that. Uh, first one is I want to go back to Peterson Farms, Peterson Family Farms. Great. So um, Peterson is, they've got to be one of the largest grain suppliers, independent grain suppliers, certainly in new york they serve so many different distilleries and breweries around the state and out of state for that matter 
but you have a particular relationship with them. You know, you have the Peterson Farms and Horton Rye. Yeah. Yeah. Now I love, and it's been, we've taken a break on this because I know I went really hard for a few weeks on it a little bit while back, <laughs> but I do like talking about the different rye varietals and what's come back out of seed vaults and all of that. So before getting into the Horton itself, I wanted to mention that you, you've said you worked with Cornell's agriculture labs and, and the seed banks that they have to identify rye strains that you might like to use. And I'm curious to go back in time to when you were deciding on strains and what rise you wanted to use, how you came to what you eventually did. Yeah, it's very simple. There's two factors. One, we, we've gone plenty down the course and that's flavor. Flavor rules all. The other part of our business is we're passionate New Yorkers. Uh, you know, I'm not from New York originally. I've lived here for 30 years. I knew by the time I was 12 years old that one day I wanted to live in New York City. And I've been grateful and privileged to live here and work here as long as I have. But there's something for us that's innate about the culture of New York. And it's not just the city. And for us as distillers of rye whiskey, it's the culture of linking the story of agronomy, of the Peterson family, of their history, not just as grain growers, but as farmers in a centuries-old tradition of farming in upstate New York. And as we talked about earlier, not just the provenance of our rye, but the attributes of growing rye in our climate in our geographic part of the world. And so for us, and it's a challenge as a small company, you know, telling stories and marketing often sort of goes out the window because of time, of financial resources. You know, we're not going to have any magazine ads or billboards anytime soon, but it's really part of our passion. And hopefully we can continue to grow on the part of this story of inherently being part of New York. And so while flavor rules all in the opportunity to collaborate with Rick Peterson and Cornell, our effort wasn't just looking at things that might be available, say, through a speed bank, but specifically to discover or to ask if there were points of discovery that might link us to rye varieties native to New York State. And that's what the Horton variety that you referenced for us is all about, those two things. It's of a New York heritage that goes back to 17th century New York, and it's about flavor. And And so, go ahead, sorry, David. No, 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 good. I was gonna say, you know, part of the fun of this story is that through these collaborations, it's not like you can go down to uh, the local dispensary and say, okay, load me up with this uh, lost and forgotten variety. We got 10 seeds, 10. And it's from those 10 seeds that with Peterson, we've been able over 
a time period of 13 years before we were even incorporated as a business to come to the point of harvesting over 200 acres of this heirloom variety of rye that we're just on the precipice. We're not there yet, but just on the precipice of sharing in a more public manner formally through through new rye whiskeys that are to come in the future. All right, a little teaser there for... A little teaser. Gonna, I mean that that was going to be a question. It's it's you know you're making a few hundred barrels worth of whiskey from this variety, or, or there's the capacity to make a few hundred barrels worth, let's say. And I was going to say, you know, what's the status of those of the rye and those uh, barrels? Yeah, I mean we're working on it. The truth is, like many businesses, not just distilleries, you know, the COVID time period, you know, threw us for a monumental loop. I'm okay. grateful to still be here. I'm grateful that our doors are open, that we've had the the pleasure and privilege of working on building out this new distillery. And so, you know, particularly with whiskey, when plans get deferred, it's not the end of the world. The whiskey keeps evolving. And, And while there is, I truly believe, a tipping point where whiskey, no matter where it's from in the world, can be specifically too damn old. We're not near that tipping point yet. And so we have been distilling and aging uh, this variety, and we're getting closer and closer. We're working on it to not just really refine the profile, but develop the appropriate brand around it. Can you give us a uh, a preview of what notes or what characteristics you get that are different? Yeah, what I'm excited about as we continue to taste is, you know, there's a different tropical profile. that I think is been borne out on a consistent enough nature that I would use it as a descriptor consistently with this variety. You know, the nature and the unique nature of, of Horton in our case is that the head of the grain is about a third of the size of the typical uh, rye varieties, whether they're European varieties grown in Europe or that have been transplanted to grow here. They're great varieties. It's just, it's a different flavor profile because the sugars are concentrated in a much smaller head of the grain. It's almost like sun drying um, the varieties of wine that sun dry the grapes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You get a much different flavor. I love some of those wines. Vincento from Santorini. Give me any time. Yeah, there you go. So with, with that, uh, you know what? I'm going to give the option to you for the last topic for tonight. Uh, one is very much about New York distilling company and one is more about the New York environment. So the first option is aging, you know, just talking about the aging facilities, uh, the cooperages you guys are using uh, and all of that. The second one was a little bit off and I wanted to, to talk a little about black dirt and it's uh it was you know an important part of your beginning story and the importance of a distillery like that to new york distilling as a whole i'll you take the pick i like i love both of those topics i'm happy to talk on either you All know right, so, age, i like them both <laughs> right, so i think in fairness just because the aging question can be addressed in, in other podcasts and I'll have some notes on that in the releases 
let's talk about Black Dirt a little bit, formerly known as Warwick Valley. Um, it's been Black Dirt for a number of years now, but I think when you were there trying stuff out, it was Warwick Valley. Um, so Black Dirt is, for listeners, it's a distillery in the Hudson Valley. Uh, they're, they've got a lot of capacity. They've got a lot of people who have come through there in both the New York scene and elsewhere who have gone on to create their own distilleries, work at distilleries. And uh, for some newer companies in New York, they also either contract a still or source whiskey for those companies as they're getting their feet under them. And in that way, they're really one of the foundational pillars in my mind for New York distilling as a whole. I wanted to ask you about your experience with them and in your mind, what they mean to New York distilling company and New York distilling as a whole. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, the truth is the guys at Warwick, Jason Grisanti and Jeremy Kidda are two of the great distilled spirits professionals in the country today. And I go further and say that Jason, as the master distiller there, is one of the great whiskey distillers uh, in the contemporary whiskey scene of our country. And in many ways, you could say we were lucky. But the truth is, when you're starting a business like ours from scratch, and the positive and wonderful nature about the craft distilling universe is that most times when you ask for opinions, ask for advice, doors fly open pretty quickly. It's not like there are trade secrets or don't come asking me those questions. And early on, before we incorporated, um, uh, we sought advice from the team at Warwick Valley, and uh, they became partners and consultants all in the same. And they were instrumental uh, both by the equipment they have, the accessibility they have. Uh, we did uh, virtually all of our recipe test runs on their equipment. Uh, and as I said, they're, they're nothing short of partners and collaborators in, in virtually everything uh, that we have created at New York Distilling Company. And they're, you know, beyond that, you know, because of their experience, their knowledge and their passion, you know, trusted resource, uh, you know, even when questions come up on a near weekly basis to be able to pick up the phone and say, have you had this experience before? Hey, can we talk through a challenge with you? Um, because we're in related businesses. And the wonderful thing is we all have our own individual brands, um, but it's fun to be able to, in our case, and I think the feeling is mutual, be able to celebrate uh, each other's work and and passion for whiskey. Um, and, you know, while they have a primary focus on bourbon and our primary focus is on rye, uh, the, the collaboration and opportunity to work with them has been one of our greatest pleasures and certainly privileges as well, as I said, uh, in helping us grow our business in Brooklyn. And it's worth noting that that collaboration has continued in a different way through that Applejack finishing I mentioned earlier. It's true Applejack for many years, you know, yeah. I mean, black dirt, you know, again, you know, Jason 
uh, Grisanti, aside from being a foremost distilling expert, is an expert in the realm of fruit studies and was, you know, uh, one of the early uh, craft distillers. And we all know and celebrate Laird's Applejack and the current generation under Lisa Laird Dunn that runs that company. Uh, but Jason's study of palmology, that of apples, is well noted and a unique perspective on making black dirt Applejack. And so, yeah, for, for years we were able to take some of their uh, once used Applejack barrels and, and use that. Uh, we've had the pleasure uh, and really delighted opportunity to not only use black dirt's Applejack barrels, but also Laird's Applejack barrels, which again, in the celebration of our sort of universe of craft distilling, present drastically different points of view on secondary barrel finishing our whiskey. So we get the best of many different worlds simply by good fortune, but also maintaining, I think, great relationships within the industry. It's it's a finishing that was done on the earlier side of the current finishing craze, which I don't know about you, to me, feels like everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> everything is being finished in some way. Yeah, we just try to be purposeful. You know, I get it. It's a fun thing to do. And and we try our best hand at, at marketing as well. There has to be ways to oftentimes, at least how we think about it, is break through some clutter. Why would somebody be interested in your product? And to a certain degree, secondary barrel finishing achieved that in one regard. But for us, you know, we settled on, on Applejack, again, whether with black dirt or with layers, because of the composite history and related history and time frame of rye whiskey in America and Applejack in America. And they share such a rich parallel history that we thought if anything and if it worked well that that was a story we could get behind celebrate and in many ways if not be instructive create a a positive and useful story around fantastic well alan i've got just two rapid fires for you and then i'll set you free for the evening number one is will new york rye week be repeated in 2023 yes it will be repeated um uh, i believe it's going to be the third week of october i'll follow up with you so you can post about it but yes there will be a new york rye week this october 2023 fantastic i'm so excited i missed it last year somehow but i will not miss it this year and awesome. the next the only other question i have for you is have you finally run out of your cases of old style pikesville rye Hey, man, I've got enough to last me this lifetime and to provide my kids with a few bottles as well. There's plenty. I have it well stocked. Uh, if anyone comes over, they're absolutely, to my joy, uh, an opportunity uh, able to share it with me. But um, I still have a few cases of Pikesville 80 proof white label rye in my possession. <laughs> fantastic well we won't share your address because that just wouldn't be fair but with that alan thank you so much for taking the time to come on to talk about new york distilling company the rise the gins the new york distilling writ large and of course in brooklyn right here in new york city thanks, so thanks so much hang on with me for just a second uh to close things out thank you everybody for listening as always there will be uh 
reviews, there will be show note links to the website where you can find all the Rise engines. And we will post as soon as the space is open so you know where to go and visit. Just a couple stops on the L train. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast, and I will see you next week. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.